rates. So I'm joined by Lillian uh, Sikertia, uh coming to us from Berlin. How are you doing, Lillian? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Ben. How was your Christmas? Or do you celebrate Christmas? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do, in fact, uh, you know, despite being both an atheist and a person of globalist <laughs> descent, uh, celebrate yes. Christmas. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it was, it was lovely. It was great. Uh, you know, my, yeah, my wife and I are in Michigan with my parents, and my little brother's here, and my little brother's and uh, his wife is coming this afternoon. So anyway, yep, nope, it's been really good. Oh, I was. That's so nice. Yeah. Um, and how was it in Germany? It was, it's lovely. The Germans have a, I think they have a very nice way of doing Christmas. They have the Christmas markets, which were happily open this year. Um, yeah, it's really it gets dark really early. And so they, you know, have a nice way of creating light um, around the holidays. So yeah, all, everything was great. Nice. Well, now that everybody has had their fill of Christmas cheer and should be sick exactly. of that, uh, <laughs> so uh, we could uh, we could talk about Marxism a little bit, and I, I do want to start taking calls in just a minute. But um, I think since the last time we talked, you had um, a article out in Jacobin called "Marxism is Not Economic Determinism." What was that about? Um, well, I, I actually was interested to know that that was kind of the main point that came out of it for the editors. Um, so the background, whatever, it's, it's, it's something that they picked as a title. I wouldn't necessarily assume that, but yes, <laughs> I know. I feel like you've, you probably had experience with the editors picking the titles for you, but I mean, that point was definitely in there and it's a common, um, criticism of Marxism that, um, I don't we see that we like think people are, are trapped by their economic positions or something like that. Um, or that mm-hmm. human agency doesn't exist out of our like rote ability to go to work and slave away for our, our, our boss. Um, and I think that I was trying to make the point that actually Marxism is a, you know, generally tries to make a critique of economic determinism. At least that's my, mm-hmm view of things that the problem is that the economy constrains our our agency not that it eliminates it or that it undermines it but that we're we're less free than we would otherwise be to pursue our many joys and delights and passions that are you know extra economic and so i always thought that the point of marxist political Mm -hmm. theory was to say that that's bad not to endorse it um, but for some, but for some reason, mm-hmm. that seems to have been the message that has been communicated to many subsequent generations of academics, and now I think people who um, are in, you know, activist circles, NGOs, and so on. So I was trying to kind of, in an oblique way, by talking about some uh, a figure in the Frank- Frankfurt School, Axel Hunnett, um, to get it making that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I should say too. I, 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 you know, if I had to take a wild shot in the dark, uh, they probably picked that as the title because, um, uh, because they figured it was the thing that would be the most, uh, you know, if, if you if you say, you know, if the title was Axel Hanneth was wrong is wrong, you know, fewer people click it, then you know, Marxism totally. is not economic determinism. <laughs> but, no, uh, absolutely, yeah. 
No, yeah, I think but, that's you know, the, the right thing. I'm sure you get that criticism a lot too. In any case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I will. Um, yeah. Um, you know, on that point, though, right? <laughs> that uh, that they picked as the headline. I mean, I, I think there is a. Yeah, I think that is interesting because because I. I guess I'm not totally sure what people mean by economic determinism because like, okay, if I understand like what you just said, that it be, that it could be, you know, ways that economic conditions can limit people's agency and that's bad. And, you know, the, in fact, the point of your political program is to try to, uh, is to try to reduce that. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but, but I also think that a lot of what people oftentimes mean by economic determinism is the idea that there are um, that you could have an analysis of history that's going to predict uh, that's that's going to say, well, you know, this is going to happen at a certain t- you know at a certain phase, or there's there's going to be that's going to make some sort of um, predictive claim about the future, or at the very least, like a causal claim about the past, and um, and that people, I think when they talk about economic determinism, part of what they sometimes mean is something like uh, that this is a view according to which such and such thing is the only thing that could happen for these economic reasons, which, you know, and that like denies people agency or something like that, which I I think, um, you know, in the G.A. Cohen's book, the Karl Marx's theory of history, he has a really nice point about this, and I think it's compatible with saying anything you want to say about like how much the version of Marx's theory of history that he defends in that book is actually true or defensible or any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> which is just like even if you take the really really strong version of this, this isn't a claim that such and such happened or is going to happen or whatever, um, no matter what anybody wants like, you know, the sort of agency constraining claim, really, you know, it's a claim about this will be what will happen because we think that people will want such and such because it's, you know, because it's in their interests and we think they're rational. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's really about the dominant, you know, tendencies of where people like how people are situated and what they're liable to do, um, you know, given pressure to the contrary, like, I think it just kind of sets some guardrails around what is possible. Like, that's what I always took to be the argument mm-hmm. that um, what Engels is saying in that uh, text, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. It's not an argument that, like, we shouldn't mm-hmm. strive for, you know, the the new or the novel or even the, the utopian forms of consciousness that, people dream about you know it's not saying that every that like your wildest fantasies about what a a just society could look like are impossible and that you can do nothing to bring Mm -hmm. it about the argument was simply that like it's not a free-for-all you know like there are things that you can do um, to shift the balance of forces and you can't always do everything that you want in that sense I just feel like the main message that like Marx and Engels were trying to, to convey to socialists by developing historical materialism is really the same message that like parents give to their children growing up. Like you just can't do everything you want, you know, like you can't have everything that you want Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, and no like grand designs of yours 
um, are going to bring about the just society that you want to see unless you sort yourself out to pull the right levers of power. And, and like, I think that, yeah, like, I mean, I just, I think that's the main claim. Um, but it's certainly not that you can't change the direction of history. Like, um, it's more like all things being equal. Here are the dominant trends. Here's where it's likely to go. And if you want something to be different, then you have to like, you know, take due consideration of those things and realize that the cards are sort of stacked against you. So, yeah, I think it's like it, it is determined. I mean, I think maybe the complicated thing is that it is deterministic in a way. I just think it's like in a really reasonable way um, that isn't all that scary. Um, but there's like all this moralizing about agency, you know, taking away the agency of the oppressed. But I don't know. There's just only so much agency as there is in the world, in my opinion. So yeah, I mean, right, and I mean, especially if like part of what we mean by oppression is taking that away. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think capitalism is what constrains your agency. I don't think Marxists are the ones who are doing so for telling you how it is so constrained. You know. Which is, for whatever reason, what academics have decided to say that if you, like, in theory, say that the oppressed cannot do whatever they want all the time, then you're somehow oppressing them. But it's like, I thought the point of talking about oppression was because agency is constrained in some way that you find unjustifiable or morally wrong. Like, surely that should be the the focus. So I, I'm not always sure what people are talking about, to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, I guess it's also maybe worth, um, you know, that's spending too much more time on this point, like, just making the distinction, like, about what we mean by determinism, like, because you could mean um, there's some way or another in which people, you know, lack agency, there are things they can't do, you know, can't do. Um, Or you could just mean there are things that you know, people are, you know, that like, there are certain facts about this situation that determine what you will do. And those aren't necessarily the same thing, because it, it, it could be that uh, because of the fact, you know, like, um, like, okay, if, if I say, like, there's a, um, I mean, just stupid example, right? Like, you know, you like you're sitting in a in a, in a room, and there are two there are two doors that lead out of the room, and you know, one of them, uh, you know, one of them leads into like a a bar where a bunch of your friends are, you know, are, are hanging out and having a good time, and the other one leads into like a a, a room with a hungry tiger in it. And I say, well, um, you know, knowing these facts and knowing that Lillian knows which which door leads to which room, I think that she's going to lead to the, go into the one with the bar because I think she'd enjoy that more than being eaten by the tiger. And say, well, does that really mean that it wasn't your choice to do it, or does it just mean that I know things about you that are relevant to um, to which choice you would make? Because I think at least some of the claims that people are thinking about when they talk about economic determinism are claims that people will act in certain ways at certain times because it's in their interests to, to act that way. And, and I, I guess I feel like it's oftentimes a good criticism of those claims. You know, like there are oftentimes there are good criticisms of those claims, I think kind of along the lines you already suggested that 
really these things are just tendencies and we don't want to overstate the case or whatever that that's all fine but i i still i still wonder about the like going from uh the facts about the situation determine what will probably happen that kind of determinism to people are determined to do this whatever you know whether they want to or not you know the sort of like agency constraining claim which you know might sometimes be true you know like but I don't think it's the same thing as the first one. Mm, can you repeat the first one again? Oh yeah, sure. Just that, um, just that. Given certain facts about the situation, people will probably do such and such because it's, that's what's in their interest to do. Like that. That's mm-hmm. in, in other words, like um, I don't know. People like uh, we think that. You know, one so one social order is only going to give way to another social order under certain circumstances because, you know, the people who maybe have all the power within the old one aren't actually going to, you know, aren't going to give it up unless they're forced to because they because uh, like whatever like some claim like that that's a claim about what's in people's interest to do right so so like we're making some sort of cause and effect claim about the past or maybe even a predictive claim about the future that's just based on um, like the assumption that certain people are going to do things because it's in their economic interest to do those things. And, yeah. mm-hmm. it, and it seems like at least sometimes that's all people mean when they like, like that's what people are at least pointing to when they make the determinism accusation is just claims like that. Yeah, I think so. I think that that is so I okay, that raises a lot of questions. I think that that saying that kind of thing is is pretty reasonable and the reason it's supportable, you know, from a materialist perspective is cuz you're not just talking about like interests that exist in the ether. You know, you don't think that interests are um trans-historical, except for perhaps the the need to find sustenance and shelter and very basic things like that. But, like, you don't – we don't think about interest as being, like, something that is – they're always the same in every epoch and under the same constraints. So the materialist argument is that given certain constraints – and this is part of what I was saying in the Hanath piece, which is – you know, given these things, these fa- it's not just facts about human nature, it's facts about the world, given like the determinism argument in the sense that it's reasonable is always a combination of claims about both what humans are like and what the society is like. And I think that there's this kind of um, tendency in Marxism to deny that there's like a theory of human nature behind most of this stuff. And I think that's not true. I think I don't think it's like a super robust rationalistic version of it. But I I think, you know, that the idea that human beings are kind of base, you know, like Cohen says, I think basically rational Mm -hmm. um, problem solvers are kind of able to um, assess trade-offs within, you know, a, a, you know, an array of values or preference orderings that, that, and Mm -hmm. there are going to be things in the, the, but the claim is that there are going to be things in the society that are going to pressure people to, make some trade-offs instead of others and that it will happen repeatedly enough to form, you know, the kind of distinct compulsions of a social system. And in that, in that, in, in given both of those 
um, given those social facts, both like what humans are like and the social structure, these are the kinds of outcomes that you can expect for people who are have are, are differentially positioned within that structure. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is obvious. So I think that that's why like there is agency. It's just structurally bounded, and that's kind of what I what I mean when I say there. It's just not a a, a free for all. Like even if you have really different preference right. orderings, then the one that the structure kind of in, in compel, like not, I mean, compulsion is, it's not co- mm-hmm. absolute coercion, but there's um, an ins- a dominant incentive structure, dominant compulsions. And given that you might in fact want to do something different, but you might feel like, well, I have to compromise or some values in favor of others. I should make something salient instead of others because this is how I need to reproduce my life in this system. And if anything like that is true, then there is mm-hmm. some determinism, you know, like it's not, um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's not like what you just laid out is not structurally any different from saying that on average, in most circumstances, um, if, uh, if, if the demand for some product goes up then then it's uh its price is going to increase right like like, like there's no right, yeah you know because I mean, in both cases you're just saying well we know enough about what motivates most people most of the time that you know that we could say um you know make these cause and effect predictive you know predictive claims and of course there are going to be exceptions right i mean there's there's going to be you know there you know there'll be people who are more like you know who uh you know, whatever, like our, our super altruistic sellers who, who, who won't, uh, as demand goes up and they see how much people need something, they'll lower the price or whatever, but like mostly they won't. Right. So we can still make this, you know, we can still make this, uh, this prediction or, or, you know, whatever, you know, you could have the, the equivalent that, uh, you know, that, that some, that, you know, Hey, some people are going to be, uh, Ingalls's right. You know, that they're, that they're going to be the, uh, you know, sons of factory owners who manage factories for their fathers, but you know they'll they'll still they'll still you know side with the revolution that that'll that that'll happen. But like, it's a safe bet that most people won't. Right. I mean, think about just two different examples that are relevant today. I mean, like think about who who is it the guy who came up with the penis, penicillin who like had decided to make the patent for like a dollar. <laughs> Like, so it could be as widely accessible as possible. Um, and, and it's like this guy, you know, that was his instead of selling it to a large company that had intellectual property rights, he just made it available. Um, and like by contrast, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these patents that are creating a vaccine apartheid around the world. You know, like it would be great right. if Pfizer would just like sort itself out morally to like do what it needs to to make this you know, or biotech or whatever to make the vaccine accessible across the planet. And it could, there's actually nothing like stopping it like in an absolute sense from doing that, but it's, it's, it seems like it just won't. And so the question is, is why, you know, and like, I think Mm -hmm. those are in the fact that you can kind of anticipate those responses um, with a great degree of regularity across um in particular capitalist firms and labor markets and so on is like how you can start talking about how all those preference order, like all those 
constrained preferences and particular types of behaviors, how they amount to a, a social system. You know, like that's what it means to talk about a social structure, not just like something that is pervasive, but something that you can anticipate that seems like rule governed and repeated and um, co- like has a, a, enough of a compulsive force on individuals such that even if you want to do other things, you're probably not going to. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, um, you know, thinking about, uh, so maybe taking a step back uh, from from the economic uh, determinism uh, part, uh, since, as you said at the beginning, you know, that's that's just kind of the, uh, what the Jacobin <laughs> uh, used to hook it. Uh, so I, I'm also interested in the larger part of the essay because uh, this is not stuff that I, you know, like, you know, these fig- you know, figures that you're, you're criticizing in here, you know, that's, that's not particularly my background. You know, I, I don't know a lot yeah. about this, but, you know, but I still, I still found it really interesting uh, and, and really like clearly, clearly stated, you know, and I, and I think it's one of those things that, you know, you don't actually have to be familiar with the, uh, the, the target, you know, the critique to, uh, uh, to be, to be interested in the, um, you know, in the critique, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you know, nobody's read, you know, nobody, nobody in 2021, 2020, yeah, 2021 still has, uh, has read during, you know, but like, you know, it's, it's still interesting to read the anti during. Uh, so, yeah. uh, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, set us up a, a little bit there. And if anybody wants to, you know, wants to call in, you know, can, we could definitely, you know, switch gears and take, take calls, but, um, but set us up a little bit there about, uh, this, this Frankfurt school theorist you're criticizing and, uh, and how it ties into the larger point you want to make. Um, okay. So the person I'm criticizing, his name is Axel Hunnett and he is a, a currently living, um, senior member of the Frankfurt School. So if people are, are listening and they are um, like familiar with any figures in the Frankfurt School, it'll probably be um, Theodore Adorno and Mark Max Horkheimer who wrote the Dialectic of Enlightenment, which was like the text that was um, a very pessimistic reading on the development of political subjectivity post-World War Two, it had a famous essay called "The Culture Industry," in which you know they just talked about the like the flattening um, of political and artistic subjectivity in advanced capitalist countries, and it had a very again like the reason it's pessimistic is it's just kind of like we are trapped in capitalism's culture industry, literally, and so revolutionary potential is really not forthcoming in the advanced capitalist mm-hmm. world. That's the most famous book, and that's um, who people are. You and then who people are usually referring to when they talk about the Frankfurt School theorist. And then um, the other one would be Herbert Marcuse, who wrote analogously, like a, a, a similar and yet different but related argument in a book called One Dimensional Man. He was kind of the grandfather theorist of the New Left in the '60s. Um, and these are all um, German emigres who were a part of the Institute for Social Research in the Weimar period, um, along with Friedrich Pollock and uh, Rudolf Hilferding and some other pretty well-known Marxists in the German um, social democratic tradition. 
um, like in the old fashioned sense, the social democratic tradition. And what has gone on since that first generation is subsequent iterations of what is now known as the Frankfurt School, which um, extends beyond their their immediate influence. Like the second generation um, is dominated by Jürgen Habermas, who is now um, in his latter years just kind of like the official philosopher of the EU and cosmopolitanism and everything. But in his younger years was a sort of neo-Marxist type um, and, um, the third generation is the, if we progress in time, the kind of people who came up in the eighties and nineties under Habermas, Axel Hanna is one of them. Nancy Fraser is something listeners or somebody, sorry, it's not a thing. Somebody that listeners may know. She often writes in the new left review. Um, I mean, she has many philosophical essays and, and collected works, but, um, she's somebody who does popular writing and kind of theory of capitalism stuff and socialism, socialist feminism. Um, and so these people all see themselves as a part of a tradition started with the Frankfurt School. And Axel Hanit is, um, he was the director of the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt for like 18 years in the early 2000s. So, you know, like in this world, these figures become disproportionately influential, not because I don't say disproportionate because they don't deserve it. Like they're not smart. Mm -hmm. They're very smart people. But like in the turn, in the sense that like in the German Academy, you have these fancy chairs and you can set the agenda for, for theory. Um, and he really did that by making critical theory take a sort of neo idealist turn. So away from Marx and back toward Hegel, if people listening kind of have an idea of how um, Marx stood Hegel on his head and turned Hegelian idealism upside down and came up with historical materialism. I think the simplest way to understand Hanit is that like, he kind of did the same thing. He was like, man, that Marxist shit did not work out. We need to go back to Hegel and talk about norms and culture and like reconstruct um, uh, what, like, I don't like reconstruct a kind of, way of talking about the normative development of modern societies. I guess that's a fancy way of saying the moral development of modern societies, as opposed to rooting the analysis in, as we were just talking about, the economic development of modern societies. And he usually thinks about this as being uh, two different approaches. And what I've tried to do is say, um, actually, they're not. Like, you can talk about norm norms and morals from a materialist perspective, um, but I'll stop there because maybe you want to ask more questions or somebody has a question about the Frankfurt School or what any I just anything I just said means in terms of like materialism and idealism. But like basically that's the move that he makes and that's the move. I'm once again like, no, 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 We're, we still Marx, still Marx over Hegel. Let's like, <laughs> let's get back on track is kind of my um intervention i'm hoping to make yeah absolutely uh so uh and yes please anybody who wants to jump in please jump in uh but uh but but i guess when you talk about this sort of um you know has wanted to talk about the the normative development of of societies like uh just, just, just a really basic way. What is, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? 
Well, he thinks that what what makes social development go like the motor, you know, how like Marxists talk about the motor of history is class struggle, um, that it's these conflicts mm-hmm. over material interests and needs and deep divisions in society that drive massive conflicts and are kind of shaping the overall trajectory of at least class societies. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah thinks it's basically the inverse of that. He thinks that that is one um, that what is fundamentally going on is that people are challenging dominant norms like um, and by norms, he means who gets considered full and equal persons in a society who is receives what he calls recognition as um, being making a value, for example, for workers, it would be like a valuable contribution who is receiving social respect. And he thinks that what's driving social development is the moral um, conflicts over um, what he calls recognition, which I think is another way of talking about respect, affirmation, um, you know, seeing somebody as being included um, and what social conflicts are all about are transforming these dominant norms. And so you can think about this in tons of different ways. Like, you know, he's very influenced by the new social movements of the 60s and the 70s. So for civil rights, um, women's movements, like, you know, the mm-hmm. arguments were that men and in particular white men see themselves as being the universal stand in for what a human being is and they are actually implicitly erasing and papering over all of these differences to you know kind of like Marx criticized the bourgeoisie for doing the same they make their interests seem like the interests of all of society um and so basically these new social Mm -hmm. movements that were influenced by marxism criticized you know white men for doing the same, something similar, for making it seem both in deed and in thought that their um, perspective on the world was a universal one. And it became this conflict over what was called like false universals. Like you think the society is one way, but that is just your subject position and you are representing the society as being identi- like identical to your own perspective. And according to Hannes, what these movements all did was challenge those like that universal, those false universals. And they forced the whole of society to recognize these differences, um, literally to recognize one another, um, to see and other people, not just objects that you could take for granted, but to see them as genuine subjects that were contributing something, something different, something valuable. Um, And he thinks that this is a basically a progressive dynamic throughout history. And the reason that it's Hegelian Mm -hmm. is because it's like, you know, you have um, he the the, the calling card is sort of the calling word that that stands out is like the dialectic. It's like Mm -hmm. in challenging the norms, you you transform the norms themselves um, and then you all reach a new stage of a new type of consciousness in which you're able to kind of affirm differences in a more complex and differentiated uni- unity, which is a really abstract way of putting it, but that it is a kind of Hegelian vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fundamentally a story about moral development. And um, he thinks that Marxism was extremely limited because it only saw 
conflict is being driven by economic interests, as opposed to this more robust moral set of concerns. And um, yeah, that's so that's where he's coming from. And the reason that it was seen his intervention has been so influential is like, you know, if that's how you think about class conflict, that it's just about these like narrow and austere and just bread and butter and like these curmudgeonly old guys, you know, in industrial labor and, and they just care about their paycheck and their pension. And like, if that's how you think about it, then yeah, there's like so many other things to think about. There's a whole moral world beyond that. And, you know, critical theorists, when he came on the scene, were like, hell yeah, you know, we want to be broad. We want to be inclusive. We want to do all that stuff. Yeah, uh, although which I could I could totally see. Although I I do have to say it's kind of funny thinking about that just in terms of certainly um, you know contemporary American politics because uh, you know I mean I I think that I think that even the sort of caricature version that you're like sort of sympathetically you know unpacking it by <laughs> you know contrasting it to. Like man, even that character sounds like a really useful corrective, right? You know, like uh, you know that, like <laughs> as a matter of fact, most people do care a lot about their paychecks and pensions, and um, and and we and we certainly live in a kind of cultural moment where you know there's an awful lot of emphasis on sort of symbolic moral recognition, you know, like that you know you say the right words in the right right order, you know that that uh, like. You know, a few years ago, it, it seemed to be very, very important to certain activists that, like, every important figure in the world say Black Lives Matter, you know, but, like, um, but actually doing the things that most people in all demographic groups say that they most care about, about jobs and healthcare and all that stuff. Is... I mean, totally, totally, Ben. Like, I mean, and let me just say that one reason that this was never going to be, I, I mean, I was actually, you know, I've, I've, I say these credit these things about Hannes, like when we get to the kind of critical points that I have about him, yeah. like with all due respect, you know, he's kind of lived rent free in my mind as kind of like the neo idealist of my time. <laughs> um, and like publishing something that was critical of him. There's an academic version of it that's coming out in this Italian journal. You know, that was like kind of like a big, a little hill for me mm, to jump. Mm -hmm. You know, I put it, it's, this is like a pretty considered, um, this isn't like off the cuff, you know, I really, and sometimes I got really sucked into his framework. I'm like, okay, well, that's true. Workers mm -hmm. are fighting for respect too. Is that really what it's all about? Um, but fundamentally it's like, I was never going to be sold on this perspective because, and I'm, I see my mom is listening now. I saw her on there. Hi, Laura. Um, she's yeah. But when I was younger, you know, she's a, she was an airplane mechanic, and I remember when um, she worked for United, and I remember when United went bankrupt, and there was this whole drama about the pensions, you know, and it's like I grew up with like a working class single mom when I was mm -hmm. younger. It was never just going to be about the norms. It was like that was like a huge yeah. crisis, and the idea that that was just like reducible, like the pressures that made that happen was somehow reducible to lack of respect was just not going to like – fit into my worldview. Um, so there's some kind of counterintuitive uh, things about that. Like you don't make a company drive them bankrupt and engage in all kinds of like philandering and um, like miss, like misanthropic sort of like irresponsible investments and so on and so forth mm -hmm. because you, I don't know, lack social respect. Like that's not what airline companies are doing. So 
there was just, there was just kind of a baseline like suspend like disbelief that I had, um, and I think if people um, have ever had a similar experience, there's always like okay, yes, and like do people do want to be respected, but like is that it? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right. I mean. I mean. Or or maybe it even like even like better example than the BLM stuff I was bringing up earlier is yeah. uh, like a year and a half ago when like people were like really seriously quarantined at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and there was that whole thing about people in various places, like, you know, quarantine New Yorkers, you know, clapping, you know, for, for essential workers. And it's like, oh, okay, totally. that's, you know, that's nice that you're clapping. Right. But like, also you're talking about people who are being forced to work in you know, in unsafe conditions and not actually being given any more money. No, totally. And so like, there's a way in which like you can um, think that, that like that is I mean is that not recognition I mean the only way that you can say like kind of rescue the view from that kind of like intuitive objection to this way of thinking about moral like the the morals of politics is like maybe that's just not true recognition you know it's not authentic recognition authentic recognition would include all the pay and working conditions um so yeah, you could make yeah, like yeah. there's an argument, a counter argument to all this, but it's just like if your intuition is like, hmm, this isn't really getting at some of the substance of the 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 problems that we're facing in the world, like I to me that's an intuition worth keeping, even if I think he could probably mount some kind of response to it along the lines mm-hmm. of what um what what I just said. Fair enough. All right. Call from Matthew. What's up, Matthew? Hi. You can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I am a big fan of Dr. Lillian. I've uh, loved your previouses, uh, previous appearances. Um, with Ben and on This Is Revolution, and um, I have a question about Marxism for you. Thank you. Um, What is, could you explain this concept in Marxism of the so-called withering away of the state? What does that really mean? Is there anything either in uh, Marx's writings or Engels' writings or in the Marxist tradition that really explains concretely what that idea means? What would that really look like? Oh, wow. That is a super tough question. Um, <laughs> is, that, do, is that, did you have something else to add, Matthew, or should we take it away? No, that's, that's my whole question. Okay. Um, I don't, I mean, I'll, I'm going to, tag team this with Ben because this is a super super difficult question um I don't think actually to to start with the back end of that I don't think there's a lot that's written that's super clear about Mm -hmm. this um there is an excellent philosophy paper written by Leah Upi recently where she defends the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat um and she argues that the point of it is to kind of create um, like in a post-revolutionary situation, the reason that you continue to have a state is that the the transition from a profoundly unjust and unequal society to a just and equal society is going to require a period of transition of people's 
you know, behaviors, attitudes, the ethos of the people. Um, and that for that reason, the state can't just collapse and go away because, you know, it's like, imagine that we're mm-hmm. all like that. We have this like skip to the revolutionary period. Like imagine that socialists are successful in winning uh, either parliamentary or society wide majority, however you think the transition comes about. And there's general buy into this process like inevitably there are going to be sections of the population, whether it's the the bourgeoisie, you know, who've been disempowered or maybe it's like uh, small farmers, you know, whatever remains of the peasantry who just like they're not sure if they want to be a part of this um, or maybe people still have kind of expectations of um, certain economic conditions and a lifestyle that were true under capitalism. And so you can't just expect everyone to just like obey rules implicitly. So you need some kind of like transitionary mm-hmm. government. I think the withering away thing has historically been an argument that like once people do acclimate to new new conditions, that kind of distinctive feature of the state that kind of um, under capitalism where like it's separated from the economy, it's separate from civil society, it's it's um, its own entity in itself. I think the idea was that that form of the state of political organization would um, mm-hmm. start to disintegrate as such. Like it would be like governance would start being more um, like the economy and the polity would become more integrated, you know, so you would have governance with like federated workers councils, for example, or you might have consumer councils, whatever, like forms of government that were like mixed, but it wouldn't be like this huge state structure that we see that basically um, manages economic affairs and kind of keeps us all hanging together despite how atomized we all in fact are under capitalism. I mean, and, and whether or not that's like a persuasive argument to you, I, I don't know, but that's kind of how I've always in, interpreted it. Ben, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, that all sounds right. I, I would say, uh, actually, I'd be super interested to, to read that paper. If you send me a link, I'll, I'll put it in the episode description. But uh, really? uh, but I think that, yeah, even the dictatorship of the proletariat thing is, is a little unclear. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think with the way the state is a lot unclear. Like uh, in Marx, uh, you know, like in Engels, like 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 not in you just now, but like in, in the original, because uh, it's, I mean, it's the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's not a phrase they use that often, uh, and you know, they're kind of a handful of references. None of them are really explained very much. Uh, part of the analogy seems to be to like. You know, Marx and Nichols use a lot of like Roman history analogies, and this seems to fit into that because in the Roman Republic, they'd like temporarily, you know, normally there are two consuls uh, who would who would share power, so they could like overrule each other to stop one person from having king like powers. But every once in a while, in a state of emergency, they would appoint a temporary dictator for like six months, and but then you say, okay, of the proletariat, right? What is what is that? What does that mean, right? Like, so that the entire working class is somehow, you know, in in this position. And, and I, I don't want to do the thing that I think socialists sometimes do when they, they sort of, like, 
find the most anodyne possible interpretation of something and like water it, you know, like, cause, but I, I think when you talk, you know, I think the one complicated thing is that the one time they really do say anything very specific about dictatorship of the proletariat uh, is in, um, you know, the, like the letters and stuff about the Paris Commune, you know, they say like the Paris Commune was, was an example of, of what the dictatorship of the proletariat would look like. Uh, and that's this, in some ways, like, you know, like certainly multi-party and in some ways, like radically, radically democratic uh, form of, of government that, that every state official um, had, you know, was, was recallable by the constituents at any time for any reason. And, uh and you know judges were elected and you know and all this stuff but then i guess also they would like you know shoot hostages and stuff you know in the standoff with the uh the versailles government you know so there's there's, there's a hint to something a little you know um, uh a little less anodyne you know being meant by by dictatorship there uh you know but i i think at the very least it means like um the idea that normally you'd want everybody in society to sort of be be represented and that there's this sort of temporary situation where because of those holdout elements for the old order that you're talking about uh you know the working class is sort of aggressively you know governing its own interests against the interests of these other groups for a, a temporary amount of time and and i could you know like and i mean maybe like reconstruction is a good u.s analogy for that mm-hmm. um I guess I understand what it means to say that that could wither away over time, right? That that as like the new economic system gets more established, that you don't have to worry about like in that situation where things came to power in a sort of sudden dramatic way, you know, counter-revolution or, you know, whatever the equivalent is with the more social democratic road to socialism, or whatever, but that the that the dictatorship, the proletariat, would wither away over time. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, where I get a little bit more stuck is that sometimes Marx and Engels will use these phrases like, uh, "Well, in the future there won't really be a state." That there's you know that like instead of you know the rule of of you know whatever phrase they use, people over people, you know, you'll have the neutral administration of things, and I guess this is probably the part of classical marxism i'm most skeptical about like that 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 because i i think that part like i think there's a way to make this true they're like really uninterested technical way just by saying like well if what a state is is an expression of the rule of one class over another class that in in a classless society that by definition you don't have that but like i just I, I don't buy the idea that like there's ever a stage in the future where like politics cease or where you don't have conflicts between people where ultimately somebody wins and the decision has to be enforced in in you know I mean one hopes that there's enough buy-in that you don't that that it doesn't have to be actually used but like at least theoretically the decision you know the decision is enforceable. I mean, like even uh, so, I was talking to uh, Lee Phillips. Uh, people might be familiar with his his Mikhail Rusworski's book, *People Republic of Walmart*, about this, and, uh, and and I think he's like very appropriately skeptical of this. In that conversation, I mean, a couple of examples we came up with were like, 
Um, okay. A lot of drug use is caused by economic misery, of course, right? There's a reason the opioid epidemic happens at the same time as all this deindustrialization. But like, you know, look around, right? There are plenty of affluent drug addicts. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think drug addiction would wither away under, under socialism. I, I think it'd be much less widespread, but it wouldn't wither away. Uh, so like you would have political conflicts between people with more of a like hands-off libertarian attitude towards that and a more political, you know, a paternalistic attitude towards it. Or uh, Lee's example, I think was like, you know, whether to spend resources, like imagine like an advanced communist society, you know, whether like political, you can solve political conflicts over like whether to like spend resources that could be spent on earth, like colonizing other planets or, um, you know, even, even just something as simple and dumb as like, uh, there's like a power line that is going to be run through a certain area. So something has to be torn up to do it. Like, and, and, you know, different people might even have different interests because even without class interests, you still have like conflicted sexual interests or even just conflicting personal interests. And, and, you know, like people might be against something like that for like historical preservation reasons or whatever. And, and then like, so if ultimately there's some sort of body that gets to decide and people fight it out within that body and, and, um, and then, you know, have to live with the decisions. I mean, that, kind of sounds like a state to me. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's fine to say that there's somebody that's going to have to, like, there's going to have to be a way of arbitrating conflict and decisions. I mean, I don't think there's any way around um, in, like, a heterogeneous polity to get around that. And, like, I think that this is a big criticism of Marxism. The idea that there seems to be no state that's necessary under communism seems to imply homogeneity and mm-hmm. identity of interests in a way that is probably not true. I mean, I actually really think that I, I think that social, I think of socialism as being a sort of state of genuine pluralism, like value pluralism for the first time mm-hmm. in a society. Like the, the problem, the problem with liberalism is that it's not actually value pluralism. Like we have like mm-hmm. a lot of different values and people have to conform themselves to one lot of value which is capital and so no matter this is the kind of point about constraints that we're talking about earlier like the reason like it's not the 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 problem isn't that marxists should think that there's that we want to fix values we actually want multiple values to flourish and we want to have a society that allows people to do that you know i've been known to say before that like i think for example religion i think that shit would get weirder under socialism because people would have yeah, like there would be atheists and there would be new religions and you know, hopefully they wouldn't be like controlled by the Koch brothers. But like it would be like people have needs, you know, and, and when you have enough time mm-hmm. to think about it, people would get goofy. And I think that's fine. Um, so long as it doesn't, you know, infringe on other people's rights. So there's this way in which um, I think. In a state like that, you have if you actually assume value pluralism that that's desirable in some way, then I think you have to have, mm-hmm. you know, politics. So I think there would still be social movements under socialism. Um, that all seems right to me. I I think that sometimes though to give the benefit of the doubt to the more orthodox tradition mm-hmm. is I I think that they did tend to mean something more specific by mm-hmm. by what they thought the state was like. 
Um, so I, I actually, in good um, philosopher fashion, I went to my bookshelf and I pulled down State and Revolution and <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I'll just say, I'll just like read one or a couple I of like things. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll just read a couple of things that I think Lenin says that are like indicative of like a different, yeah. like a way in that isn't that totalitarian vision of society that he might mean something more specific. Um, so when he says like, and this is in the period of revolution, he says, in reality, this period is inevitably a period of an unprecedentedly savage class struggle in unprecedentedly acute forms. And consequently the state in this period unavoidably has to be a state that is democratic. And then in italicis in a new way, for the proletarians and the propertyless in general and dictatorial in a new way against the bourgeoisie. So like this kind of thing that Lenin says suggests to me that it's a transformation of state form and, mm -hmm. it, and it's legitimate for a transitional government, like in a way that's kind of distinct from normal states but that also he's interested literally in transformation, like the development of a new kind. And he might think that a state is kind of reserved for, you know, imperial states or um, mm -hmm. state national state structures of a certain kind. And I think so. I just think there's like more mm -hmm. to what Lenin is saying. And like he says, for example, other places that he talks about um such are the questions about the transformation of public functions from the political into simply administrative ones, as well as about the political state. So he starts talking about the political state in parenthesis. And then he says the latter term, which is particularly capable of causing misunderstanding, points mm -hmm. to the process of the withering away of the state. A state which is withering away may be called a non-political state at a certain stage of its withering away. So I think what he's talking about there is that like, distinctly political character to the state where it's not where like things that are not properly considered political or public are somehow not political and not a matter of state concern. So like private property rights or the family or whatever. And mm -hmm. so I, I take him in those instances to be making a point that many people like feminists have made many times before that there is a restricted idea of what is relevant to politics that the bourgeois state sets up and like, we want to challenge that and have a different mm -hmm. organization. If, I don't know if that helps or makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I love the point about religion. I, I think that's, I think that's totally right. Um, you know, like it, it goes along with the, you know, I really like, like, uh, you know, there's a point in, um, I think it was, it was Bhaskar's debate with Jade Epstein where he starts talking about how, uh, you know, in a in a socialist society, you know, you'd you'd have you know a sign of the progress would be the flood of like bad poetry and you know et cetera that people would be writing because you know they had so much more time and you know so much less you know financial totally. anxiety. Um, I, I guess excess spiritual energy, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> I guess completely right. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, like like probably uh yeah, probably in a uh in, in like a really egalitarian uh society where you know people's needs are you know broadly bad, etc. Like probably a lot of like the remaining violence is like people like just like getting furious about each other and like 
I don't know, like arguments, uh, arguments about literature or something because suddenly they've got all of this. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I think that on, on the Lenin point, I mean, I, I guess, so there's the obvious reading of what he means when he says, well, you, know, you wouldn't have a political state anymore. There's an administrative state that I think is criticizable in kind of the ways that we were talking about earlier. I'm not totally sure I, I get the alternate reading you're suggesting at the end there, since if, um, you know, because you're talking about the sort of feminist criticism of the traditional liberal idea of what politics is, but that seems to be like expanding the sphere of of what's political so so like the mm-hmm. you know uh you know hierarchical you know family like now counts as a as a political issue and that i mean that seems like if if the state is is taking an interest in that in a different way now i mean that I guess I don't quite get how that would fit with the idea of the political state going away and just leaving an administrative state. Yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't. I I think that like Lenin uses words like the political and like awfully specific ways. Like mm-hmm. I think he like I the point I was making is that I think he uses a word like that to refer already to a particular kind of state. So, like, he's not, like, waxing philosophical about what could be political in general. Mm -hmm. There's this, like, Mm -hmm. existing restricted sense of the political, and that's literally what he means by the political. And, like, I think he was writing about all of this at a time when it wasn't clear that bourgeois states could expand what is political that much. You know, and, and like, and so in his mind, mm-hmm. this was a narrower dynamic under capitalism than it kind of, than it actually is. But I think some of the point stands because it's always a cut, like the bound, like, you know, and actually Nancy Fraser makes this point, and I think it's helpful, that the boundaries between political and economic um, and other spheres, like, you know, what we usually call see as spheres, but that these boundaries between institutions are like an endemic source of conflict under capitalism for reasons that protect the particular class. Um, and like, I think that's like the, the nub of the problem. And I think it's a generous reading that I'm giving. Um, but I think that what he seems to be mm-hmm. criticizing is something like that. Although I think it's perfectly fine to say, yeah, the alternative just being an administrative state seems completely implausible as well. And like, I think that's fair. Like, I think I don't think that there's like a robust counter theory going on here. I think it's mostly a critical and transitional theory of the state that emerges in the Marxist tradition, period. And I don't think that like anybody has really done a great job of figuring out what an alternative system of governments would be, which is a part of our problem, like not being able to convince people that anything could be better Mm -hmm. or that anything wouldn't be just like a disastrous experiment um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, unnecessarily violent or something like that is like one of our, you know, it's one of the biggest obstacles I think to getting people to see, aha, like there's a different kind of society that we could be organizing here Um, for a lot of people. You know, if, if the alternatives seem are what they are in the 20th century, I think, you know, the shortcomings of that are kind of, at this point, they've become rather clear. A hundred percent, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I was actually talking to uh, my uh, my little brother about this yesterday because I I, I gave him uh, the uh, China Mieville book about the October Revolution for Christmas. So, uh, oh, that's and, a nice uh, book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, so we were we were chatting about this, and uh, and yeah, I mean that's like. You know, and, and like how this is like one of remarkably few books that like have been, you know, written. Well, let's let's put it this way: that like you know, have been published at a scale that you're ever going to like just run into them at a bookstore. Uh, yeah. that, uh, in uh, in the English speaking world, in like recent memory, that has any view about the Russian Revolution except that it's a morality tale about how you know it's 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 like it could have only ended in you know gulags and bread lines and you know that was the that was the only possible scenario and and i think because that view that you're talking about is so is so deeply entrenched you know that that's that like the that whatever the problems are with what exists you know like any attempt to to tinker with it and then you know create something else you know is, is just inevitably going to be terrible Yes, I think that is what people think. And I think this is really like a, you know, on a more ideological note, I, I think it's a product of a certain deep set Cold War ideology that is actually at this point something that we need to like reconsider. Um, I think anytime you say that there is like any anything about socialist societies that's worth learning from, like really existing socialist societies, mm-hmm. um, it's taken to be an apologia for these things that are obviously terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that like 30 years after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union, it's just, it's time to like take a deep breath and be like, if we want to have an alternative kind of society, what is there can, that can be learned here? So like mm-hmm. I talk about this all the time. You know, I live in Berlin now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've become very obsessed in, you know, typical American goes to Germany fashion. I'm obsessed with the DDR, the, the German Democratic uh-huh. Republic. Um, I've been to numerous East German cities and gone to see their housing blocks and re- yeah. reading the books and everything. And something that stands out to me um, actually stood out to me the other day. I went um, when I went to the DDR museum that's run by a private uh corporation that is like really anti-communist i left this museum just thinking they fit despite all of the like the the dripping and condescension and disdain and everything Mm -hmm. on the placards and the ideological way in which they explain things to me in some ways the the materials from the ddr kind of spoke for themselves that like you're not going to convince me that this was just this abject miserable place like actually Mm -hmm. um despite the fact that it obviously wasn't you know didn't work out and there are the criticisms of it should be clear to anyone paying attention actually there is sufficiently enough good things here um that you can we should start asking why did this fail like why weren't they able to expand on and solidify and make better some of these good things and like what can we learn from this you know so for example um they had these like trade union lotteries um where they would like Mm -hmm. pay people to go on vacation 
uh, every two years you could win the trade union vacation lottery and they would send you to on vacation for free to the sea or something like that or to another um, so Soviet or you know brother socialist state and the trade unions would pay for it all and you would go with your whole family and like they'd send some other families with you and if you didn't know them it didn't matter because it's like then you can meet new people and have some people to party with or whatever and <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking about this and I'm going to this little seaside town in East Germany and I'm like, what? You're not going to convince me that that was a bad, like, this sounds great. Why don't we, why don't we do this again? This could, you know, and there are things like that. And so the, one of the reasons mm -hmm. that the future is so foreclosed, in my opinion, is that we refuse to try to even try to learn because the only message that we have received is complete and utter abject failure and totalitarianism. Um, and like, I just think that if you're interested mm -hmm. in theory or in, you know, an alternative economy, if you're interested in getting into it, like you kind of have to try to re like open, open, um, open your eyes, like be live to the possibilities because it's not the case. Like that's a, that's a, it's just mm -hmm. not the case. Like there really is something to be learned and you don't have to apologize for Stalin's crimes to see some of that. And I think that as time goes by, as the decades roll on and as we we continuously look to the future, what is our alternative? At some point, you have to take stock of what has actually happened and see if you can turn it around, see if you can find the resources there. Um, and part of that is going to have to do with forms of ec economic organization. It's going to have to do with political organization, civil society, various ways of you know organizing free time and other other things. Um, so now I'm just rambling, but I, I just think that there is like, um, I think the Cold yeah. War lens has sufficiently distorted things such that like most Western leftists, their first mode of approaching this is just like, sorry, 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 this was not real socialism. Um, we want this other real socialism, but we can't tell you what that's going to be like. Um, Sucks. I know it sucks. We can, we don't have blueprints or anything, and like we, I just think we have to break past that barrier. Yeah. Well, um, that ended on the perfect note because the, uh, <laughs> the the book that I'm uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the book that I'm writing with uh, Bosgar and Mike Beggs for uh, Verso is is literally called the Blueprint. Uh, oh, but, uh, really? Okay, then. Yeah. Good. Ben is on it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, uh, that's that's uh, yeah, that's that's definitely uh, that's definitely Bosco's choice, not mine. But I uh, but I, I, I do enjoy <laughs> saying it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean I think that I think that what you're saying is really important, and I think that I mean I think that the unfortunate thing is, I think probably most Western leftists say what you just say, and then like the sort of minority view, which is even less useful, is uh, actually that was great, uh, like you know. Right. Which is, uh, <laughs> And, and in both cases, like in in both cases, there is the sort of assumption that it's it's everything that exists in the societies is a package deal that you, right, that you exactly. can't can't say like yeah um, you know you can't like disentangle some of the elements. So it's like okay, like uh, you know could could we have the the uh, the the trade union you know vacation lottery and and not have you know the Stasi at the Berlin Wall. Um, or, and, totally. you know, yeah. And, and I think, um, I think we do need to take it, 
take the example of the society seriously, like in a couple of directions, because I think you could say, like, I think you could say the thing that, like, look, to be clear, right? Like, uh, you know, we have numerous objections to the way these societies were organized, starting with the fact that, like, you know, as democratic socialists, like, you know, we 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 care about you know civil liberties and uh, and, and democratic rights a lot, but also, um, one so one reason is to take to like actually spend some time looking at those societies is that there are positive things that can be learned from them, like your example, or, you know, I, I actually think, I actually think there are a bunch of these. Um, and even with a society that's as, as bad in some ways as like contemporary China with, you know, in, in terms of like, um, in terms of, of, in fact, both uh, a lot of bad things that didn't exist in the DDR and, you know, and some of the bad things that did exist in the DDR. Like, even in a case like that, I think that you could say, well, look, I mean, if nothing else, this is an incredibly dynamic economy where there's some steps, there's a lot of, like, the state plays a much bigger role uh, than is normally the case in capitalist countries, at least in peacetime, and, and there are things you can learn from that. But um, there are positive things. But also, even in terms of the negative things, I, I think one of the things that really drives me crazy about what you're describing, the sort of, like, you say, oh, that wasn't real socialism, real socialism would be, and that's just a black box, right? You know, like, one of the things that drives me most crazy about that is that it's so, uh, it's such a cheap way to engage with that history because, uh, you know, you're letting your, like, just by saying, oh, that doesn't count, don't look at the, don't look at it, don't think about it. You're saying that we don't actually need to, um, like, we actually don't need to think about the negative parts of the experience, not just like the political negative parts of the experience, like the secret police and all that, but like the economically bad parts of the experience. We don't need to think mm -hmm. about that because just trust us under real socialism that wouldn't happen. Like that's uh, that that's not really very convincing, I think, to most people, and it shouldn't be because uh, I mean, if you're saying like, oh, we, you know, we wouldn't have any of the things that were like frustrations of you know east german consumers at the grocery store or whatever uh because what because like it'd be democratic like it's and as then spell that out for me right why does that mean that that wouldn't happen like like is is it um like if if the ddr had been a multi-party democracy with a party that won the uh majority or plurality that year and the you know parliament got to appoint the head of the central planning office you know, would that have meant that those things didn't happen? It's not obvious to me why. Uh, and then, you know, you could say, oh, but it'll be super duper directly democratic. And and I, I don't know, I tend to find like Zizek stuff on that pretty convincing. Like, I've, I mean, there only been, you know, a couple, you know, I've, I've uh, voluntarily re-adjunctified myself now. And there were only a couple of years of my life where I actually had to do this regularly. But like, I don't know, those couple of years that I had to like, go to like monthly faculty meetings. Like I always wanted to kill myself by the end of the meeting. Like, like, like I, I hated every moment of it. Right. You know, like, so if you say, uh, if you say that, like, we want a form of socialism where everything is going to be exactly like you know, that all the time, I don't, you know, I don't think that's very appealing. Right. I, I, I want people like part, if part of the appeal of socialism is that we're supposed to have all this extra free time and, you know, material comfort so we can get weird about religion and all that stuff. Um, then I I think um, 
yeah, I've been I mean, telling people they're going to spend their lives in meetings isn't very attractive either. All of which is just to say, whatever positive conclusions you come to about what a social society could look like, uh, I, I mean, I think that there's, I yeah, there's the super cheap and 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 like uninteresting and unconvincing way of being an anti-Stalinist Marxist, where you just sort of say, like, oh, um, I don't like that kind of socialism. What I like is and then you're so vague that it doesn't it doesn't mean anything and 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 nobody can actually imagine how it would work and and i think that you you can't do that i mean i, th- I think at this point you have to at least try to set you know i think you have to actually try to draw some kind of blueprint at least um not in the sense of say that like i think anybody in like 50 years in an actual transition to socialism is going to like care what me and Bhaskar and mike think and like you know read this book to like find out what to do right you know like i I definitely don't think that and and not even in the sense that i think that like there couldn't be some there could be a kind of society that's like more unlike the way economies work now than what we're probably going to describe in that book i think there totally could be but i think that i think that right now if you want to overcome this sort of deep cynicism about the idea that there's any way that you could fundamentally reorganize the society. I think it's important that we have something that we can tell people in a sort of, here's what it could look like five minutes after the revolution kind of way. And, and I mean, people afterwards could come up with like more fundamental ways to reorganize society. And like, I'm all for that. I can't anticipate that, but I mean, like, I, I think you gotta, you know, get away from like the thing, you know, from like the, was it one of Marx's, uh, introductions and prefaces to one of the editions of Capital, where he says the thing about not uh, writing recipes for the cook shops in the future. You know, like I, I think you got to, or else people don't think they're going to have anything to eat. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think the time, the time is nigh. Um, I think this is kind of a, st- a thought that's starting to generalize, though. I think I'm. I mm-hmm. mean. Um, on the socialist left, I, I think at least the people I talk to, I, which might all just be people who are interested in the same stuff, so take it with a grain of salt. But I, uh, I do think that like this thought is like, you know, I spent a year like the past, I don't, maybe it was six months or something like that. Maybe it wasn't that long. Um, mm-hmm. I had a reading group going um, with other kind of socialist scholars that were like interested in the socialist calculation debate from the early 20th oh, yeah. century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like it's not um, – that's just not something that I feel like would have happened five years ago even. No. So I do think people are like opening up to that question. And um, there was actually a wonderful article that Jacob Blumenfeld wrote in the Brooklyn Rail. Um, mm-hmm. It was called Lift the Ban, and he made an um, kind of an, an analogy between – I think it was called Lift the Ban. If you're, I hear you typing. If you're searching for it, um, let me know if you find it. Jacob Blumenfeld. Um and he wrote like an, an analogy between um, the the Jewish ban on having images of God and the um, socialist or communist ban on having images of socialism. And <laughs> he had a, um, but it was very very thoughtful and like actually he really drew on a lot of left wing Jewish thinkers to make this point. Um, and I think there really has been a kind of default um, sort of. Uh, like yeah, you don't like the you don't want to engage in idolatry. You know, you want real mm-hmm. democracy and the real movement. But it's like, 
I like that was written at a time when people kind of thought they were know what they were doing and there was like extreme confidence in the socialist movement. I mean, um, I was just reading this book about uh, you'll notice the Lenin rediscovered book by Lars mm-hmm, Lee, mm-hmm. and um, he was you know just talking about like the confidence people had. They were just bringing the good tidings <laughs> of yeah. you know the the next the next phase of human development, um, and we're just not in that world anymore. And I think it's worth worth reconsidering. And it's not anti-democratic to give people. Um, give people ideas because I, I genuinely don't. My impression of social movements mm-hmm. right now isn't that as having participated in them and observed them. Um, I think the idea that there's this kind of like just stating idea of socialism coming out of the movements we are familiar with is just not true. Um, mm-hmm. And if you have the means and the time to put some thought into it, I think you can only be helping us out. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that gestation analogy has has been really unhelpful. Um, I, I think, you know, I, 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 yeah, I did find that book, that article, Lifting the Ban. Uh, yeah. I, uh, so I will also put the link to that in here. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that um, G.A. Cohen has a book called If You're an Egalitarian, Why Are You So Rich?, uh, was like reading that for, for like two months. So, you know, I'd always joke to people who saw me reading it that the title was aspirational for me. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I want someday for that to be a good own, you know, uh, but, uh, uh, but it's, it's his, his like Gifford lectures and, and it covers a lot of different subjects. And, uh, and there's one that is about that, uh, you know, the history of the like obstetric metaphor and like, mm. you know, Hegel and Feuerbach and you know, Marx and uh, and the Marxist tradition and and uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it's um, yeah, I think that's been like extraordinarily unhelpful because it turns out that I mean, if 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 nothing else, I mean, if you want to learn, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that you can learn just as like a really easy, quick thing, you know, from the history of actually existing socialism, it's that uh, we we don't actually uh, that none of this is obvious, right? You know, that like, uh, that, that there is, that it's, it's not actually ready-made to, to plug in as, as soon as you overthrow the old system at all. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really unhelpful to, to think that, right? I mean, like, I, I like, you know, you're talking about, uh, the Lars Lee book about Lenin, you know, I always think of, uh, the, uh, uh, episode of of uh, old episode of TMBS that you know Boscar and I were in studio and, and he had a really good line in it about how you know people like Ryadinovskaya will make this big deal about how Lenin was was uh, was rereading Hegel you know like like just before the Russian Revolution and you know and like talking about this as as, as if this were like really important and profound. And Basker was like, yeah, no, he shouldn't have done that, right? He should have been reading like some economics or military theory or something that would actually help them, you know, build this new, you know, build this new state. Um, but yeah. we, uh, we have another call uh, from uh, Steve. Steve. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hi there. Um, so I was going to ask, when you were talking about the uh, Soviet Union and uh, surely we can learn some things from it, despite all the, the Eastern Bloc, despite all the terrible things. And um, 
Ben used the phrase, you know, why is it why is it got to be all or nothing? Surely we can we can, we can accept there were some good things, even though there were also some some bad things. And I was just wondering what you think, uh, Lillian, about that applying that concept to Marx as well. So I, I write about Marx, and I mainly write about his theory of history, and. I then get told that, that because because his labour theory of value is problematic, then everything else about Marx is should I should throw that away. And I kind of think I think we've 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 almost backed ourselves into a corner by by with the with the whole Marxism thing. And, and other people have made this point, obviously, uh, that um, that maybe some other term, if we called it scientific socialism or some other thing, then we wouldn't find ourselves in this position where we have to. If you think one idea of Marx is good, then you you kind of like get lumped in with all you, as a supporter of all his other ideas. Um, and I was just wondering where you kind of stand on that. How do, should, do we have to treat Marx's work as a single body of work and it's all or nothing? Or can we pick out the bits we like? I've been told on, on various podcasts, you can't cherry pick Marx. And I just think, well, why not? Just yeah, some good ideas. <laughs> who's some actually, who's ideas. Telling why, would you not, why would you not take the good ones just because there were some terrible ones as well? Steve, who's telling you that you can't cherry pick Marx? Uh, what podcast are they? Yeah, uh, I, there's a couple I did with Doug Lane actually. So it's it's, it's Doug's um, Doug's YouTube audience is telling me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm, I'm going to change the way I think about things because of this, but I'm I'm saying there is obviously this this is an opinion that's out there that Marx is a body of work, and you either take it or you don't, rather than as it seems with you know, Isaac Newton, who did a load of good stuff, but also spent years trying to turn lead into gold with various alchemy type practices, you know, can we not just have the good things? That's, that's, um, and if we do, uh, where, where is, where does the line come? Where do you start being a Marxist? How much do you have to agree with before, before you're a Marxist? Um, and if you're not a Marxist, are you allowed to agree with any and that kind of, so yeah, I was just wondering about your thoughts on that really. Um, I think that you are allowed to cherry pick whatever you want um, from Marx. I think happily you don't need, like I think the the good outweighs the bad. And for the most part, um, Marx is right about an awful lot of things. And in the instances with where he's wrong, it usually just makes the other stuff stronger to say that it's wrong. So like you don't need the labor. I mean, I'm actually pretty ambivalent about the labor theory of value. I think there's some like meta sense in which it's, plausible but um i you know i i I, you know i learned about marxist theory from people who just totally did were like listen this is very controversial most people don't take it seriously um i'm going to teach you everything about marxism class conflict and capital accumulation without the labor theory of value so you know no no harm no foul like and actually if you get rid of that and you stop making you know, normative arguments about why workers are oppressed based on the labor theory of value. As it turns out, the argument that workers are oppressed only gets stronger because you can say more definitive things about how their labor is controlled, the arbitrary decisions to which they are subject, and whether or not the reason that they are being harmed is because they are not being paid the full worth of their labor. That actually starts to seem like small potatoes given like the behemoth of like lack of, you know, control over the overall direction of society based on like how capital investment tends to take place. You know, so like, I guess my, my point is that if you don't agree with something, um, 
the, the, the consolation for people who are on the left who want to, you know, who have anti-capitalist politics is that, like, you get to just be right about a bunch of other stuff, too. Um, and, you, and, like, if you actually believe what you're saying, I mean, at least in my opinion, if you actually think the so, your social theory is right, the, the idea that some parts of it are wrong just shouldn't be that or have been wrong in the past or not formulated well. Um, they shouldn't be a threat. Like only people who actually fear that they are wrong and can't and whose arguments can't stand up to critical scrutiny fear one part collapsing being like a domino effect. And I think that like for the most part, Marx is right, and you don't need some of the bad stuff to, for the rest of the good stuff to stand. And I got to that conclusion because I just wanted to know the truth. I mean, that's the thing is like it's not about Marx; it's about what is true in the world. And it's a happy coincidence that like he helped people understand what is true, um, and so therefore, like I like the guy. But like. If you want to explain it in some other way, you know, read a companion to Capital. You know, there's always these debates. I mean, I personally think people should read Marx, but there's always these debates on the left. Like, can't you just read somebody else? And it's like, yeah, read David Harvey's companion to Capital. I don't care what you do, just so long as you understand. Um, so I, I don't know if that's really answering your question. I just I have a very problem based way of looking at these things. I just think I'm either saying something that I believe to be true, that's consistent with how I see th with the facts in the world, or like I'm, I'm not. And I have, I have so far not been persuaded that Marx is like so egregiously wrong about so many things that like I just need to chuck the guy. Um, if that were ever to be the case, I'd be like, okay, I'm not a Marxist anymore, no problem. I don't well, know I think, yeah, I think I'm like that. I think, you know, sometimes if you talk about Marx, you'll sometimes get someone who'll crop up with some letter he wrote to Engels in 1846, where he made some kind of derogatory <laughs> remark about Slavs or something. Yes, and, and, that and is that, true. This is very modern social media kind of idea where you just, instead of listening to what someone's got to say, you just listen out for the one thing that you can then pick on and say, Oh, this guy's this guy's out of out of order, and I don't need to to, to address anything else. He any of his other ideas because I can stick him in a box because of that. And um, I, you know, I think that with pe people that are doing that, and there is, there is a tendency on the left to, to 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 do that, and there is a tendency among people who are, are not very keen on Marx to do that with Marx. And I think there's a there's a lot that we miss if we treat Marx and everybody else, anyone else. In, in that way, if we just look for the one thing they've said that's objectionable and then stop listening to all the, all the rest of their ideas. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true on social media. I think it's true for the right, you know, it's ideological and then I'll let Ben jump in, but I, I think it's also true yeah. on the left. Like, you know, people who like, you don't have like, I, and I mean this seriously, like if your view of the world depends on such a highly integrated, like an over-reliance on such a highly integrated body of thought by one thinker. Um, it just means that you don't, you either don't understand what you're talking about or you don't really believe it's true or some combination of the two. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, for sure. Um, and, I, and I think that the idea that you know that that Marx is is like unified and 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 everything that he says you know stands or falls with with, with everything else he says. I mean, just just doesn't make a lot of 
sense on its face, right? I mean, why would that, I mean, why would that be true uniquely for this one person that's not true of anybody else, right? You know, that like the rest of us seem to be capable of saying, you know, true things and false things and, uh, and, you know, and, and even like, and even saying true things that are partially formulated on the basis of false things. Like we could all understand that, you know, that, um, you know, Darwin, you know, didn't understand how, uh, how, inheritance works he didn't know about genetics and so some of what the way he formulated the theory of evolution was wrong about that but the sort of basic insight about natural selection is still right and you know if you can process that you should be able to do the equivalent for the uh the labor theory of of value and uh and, and marx you know since um, i think maybe it's because because of the, the the fact that we talk about marxism and marxists and that kind of thing it it does put a lot more emphasis on the one guy and 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 that everything he said is a body of work whereas when we talk about gravity rather than newtonianism or you know you know people being newtonians we just talk about people who accept that gravity is a thing yeah i mean we do we, we do still talk a little bit about darwinists yes, you know, at least yeah. in uh, at least in this backward country so uh <laughs> yeah yeah no i i think um you know, I think that I think that all that all makes sense. I, I would, yeah. I, I mean, to me, Marx Marxist is like a useful shorthand for like a bunch of more complicated ideas that if you that about how you know you support socialism and and you have some kind of view about historical change and how societies work. Uh, where that, you know, that is, uh, you know, that it's, it's not just that, like, you know, we have a bad system because everybody has bad, you know, because people have bad ideas in their heads. And, and once we, you know, once we give everybody the good ideas, uh, then then we would have a different, you know, we would have a different system that you don't believe that, that you, you believe that, you um, you know that you believe that a, a story about how society works and how and how it tends to change from one form of social organization to another that is is about the um, you know that that's you know basically about the kinds of entities that Marx thought they were about even if you could certainly disagree about the detail I, I think it's like a useful shorthand for for saying all of that but also. Uh, if if somebody wants to say like oh you're not a real Marxist because you don't believe in X Y and Z then I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable just saying okay then I'm not but you know <laughs> like you know but like uh, you know I tend to not tell, do, tell, you describe myself as a Marxist but I do I I did Highlands Bunker podcast a while ago and they called me a Marxist historian like I don't care <laughs> I'm fine with that I'm not gonna I didn't make a fuss about it and I don't mind that but I um I wouldn't I probably wouldn't describe myself like that because i just think um it tends to open you up to a lot to people assume make a lot of assumptions that aren't necessarily correct then yeah maybe i mean like, like i said I, i'm not i'm not too invested in the terminology oh what i was going to say well lily was talking about uh i i should say i'm a i'm a centrist i'm a read capital don't read capital question my position is that you should read capital but you should start with chapter four <laughs> Lily, what's the uh, just 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 out of curiosity, if it's something that you could you could sketch out really quickly at the uh, at at the end here, where you say that you think there's like a a meta sense in which the labor theory of value is true, like uh, what do you 
what do you mean by that? Because I, I think like, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, socialists, a lot of people who would I, who would think of themselves or be thought of as others as Marxists, you know, say above are, have the, have this view that like the labor theory of value is obviously true because what they mean by the labor theory of value is something like pretty loose and intuitive about, you know, workers making everything and, and the, and capitalist profits, uh, you know, being taken from that, and and then I think a lot of times when when economists, uh, you know, including some that you could broadly call Marxist economists, say the labor theory of value isn't true, I think what they what they mean by that is that something that's like much more specific and technical isn't true. Like, um, you know, this is to be just a little bit anachronistic about it, that like uh, the equilibrium price of, of goods has something to do with some sort of, you know, completely like is, is in some sense or another a function of like the average socially necessary labor time that goes into them or, 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 or something like that. Right. So, so I, I, I think oftentimes people are talking past each other about this, I can come back on that uh, very quickly if you if you if you like. Ben. Yeah, so, no, please, 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 please. Um, so I think yes, I think you're right. I think my objection to the labour theory of value, I think, is, um, for example, Sir Cohen's paper on that, I think, is is right. If you if you take the the specific terms that each that people use, you can't have each term meaning the same thing all the way through and get to the end. It has to terms have to change meanings in order to to to. to um, kind of create that labor theory of value as most people elucidate it and so i uh, yes at, on a technical level i think those claims are internally inconsistent however the gist of it that workers don't get paid the worth of their effort the value the true value of their effort is patently obvious by the fact that there are some people that don't do any work and still still get loads of money so you know and i don't mean i don't mean unemployed people or people who can't work because of ill health or whatever i mean you know there are members of the bourgeoisie who do no work and still end up with money off the back of other people's work so clearly <laughs> the people doing the work are not being re- rewarded for their effort because otherwise shareholders pa- totally passive shareholders not people that have that have you know, arranged the company or, or had entrepreneurial brilliance or anything else. Literally, people that are just shareholders make profit from being shareholders. So clearly, the, the labour theory of value in that, I don't know if that's what Lillian meant by a kind of a, a meta sense, but at some level, certainly people who make widgets don't get the value of their, their labour. Um, I'm here. Hey, Lillian. Yeah, can you hear yeah. me? Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, I think maybe something in a meta sense like that might be accurate. I mean, like as a class, it just seems like workers like, you know, the diminishing size of the pie and so on. Um, I don't have like a considered view on this. I just I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of the way in which the kind of neoclassical marginalist revolution and like how they think about mm-hmm. the economy the way that that just like took over any and all questions of classical political economy, all of whom like Marx and Ricardo and Smith and others took the labor theory of value for granted that they did so at the particular time in which they were combating arguments against socialism and that 
later everybody just like seemed to say okay we can, there's nothing we can do to respond to these arguments like i'm just skeptical when like debates become super one-sided like that where like even marxists like we won't even defend this because it's so patently absurd it's like okay but like adam smith didn't think it was absurd ricardo didn't think it was absurd Malt like malthus didn't think it was absurd marx didn't think it was absurd like these are really smart guys you know so Absurd. Mm -hmm. The way that people just think that's obvious is um, that's obviously wrong. Anytime I encounter that, it's like, you know, as Ben knows, like in philosophy, I just my experience is like I've had people just laugh at me out openly when I said I agreed with something like historical materialism. Like I've literally had somebody doing the phenomenology of dance as their dissertation laugh in my face openly like not just a chuckle but like ha 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 does anyone believe in that anymore like so anytime i'm confronted with an argument that's like this is obviously wrong and it happens to be something that um marxists have thought in the past i usually like don't say oh yes <laughs> obviously having said that I think that, like, there's just, yeah, I think Ben is right. There's just different levels of what people are talking about. There's, like, the level at which you're talking about a theory of relative prices. And, like, me, and, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm just so definitely not an economist in such a way where I can't really arbitrate that dispute. You know, it does seem like labor mm -hmm. does not generate the relative price of things. You know, like, the amount of labor is not... Um, into a commodity is not what determines its its price necessarily, um, or at least the value of labor um, mm -hmm. relative to other commodities on the market. So if that's wrong, okay. But then there's like the meta. The, what I was talking about is the meta sense is like in some way, like all of these things do come from labor. You know, like there's literal labor that like works on objects in the world. The labor, you know, what Marx called living versus dead labor, you know, fixed capital is a product of labor. Living labor is obviously, you know, that is your labor power is the product of labor. And, and so in a sense, when we're talking about like what the economy is, there is this way in which people try to over evaluate other things like risks, you know, just to like make economy, like make capital and its managers seem like more useful people than they in fact are. Um, and, and I think like uh -huh. there is probably when I say a meta sense, there's probably just like there might be a basic level at which, you know, we're all we're making this world together and laborers do most of that. And when we talk about the overall production of relative values in the society, like there might not be a better way to talk about that than like, yeah, workers do it as a sort as a shorthand. Um, and so, like, I think when you say, like, we produce the value in this society, we produce all these things, that's, like, an important thing for working people to say. Like, we contribute all of this, and your risk-taking and your, your, like, hedge fund management and all your bullshit, that's not valuable in the sense that we think – you know, and so you're, you're talking about social mm -hmm. value, and, and I don't know, maybe that's not, like, a very scientific way of answering it, and I just think that, like – I, I just don't think I'm so quick to totally brush it aside if that kind of answers the, the question. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly sounds like it does to me. I, I mean, I, I should say I am like 
I'm, I'm, you know, also definitely not an economist, and and I'm, you know, I'm sort of cheerfully happy to to to, you know, be told by you know by economists, you know, what the right answer <laughs> and stuff like this is because I I I don't I don't think much hinges on it in, in terms of the larger right. point that you're, you're making, um, and you know, but I I would also say like. I'm a little bit agnostic about it, you know. I mean, I'm, I, I I like that paper that Steve is talking about a great deal, but also I think that, um, you know, he is you know, in, in the paper is is engaging with a sort of specific technical interpretation that uh, I, I have not done nearly a deep, a deep enough dive to know if like that actually covers everything, every specific technical interpretation that's out there, you know, like, like I've, I've like glanced at the Andrew Kleiman book, you know, reclaiming Marxist capital. And, and I have a really vague idea of what he says about it in there. Uh, so, uh, so, so I, I, I just don't know. Right. But, but the part of the code paper that I find convincing, I, I think, I think does fit with what you're saying, Lillian, which is that, um, which is that even if, at the level of a technical claim about prices, there's some sense which labor theory value is is not true, you know. And, and I think you and Steve are saying the same thing, you know, that like the labor theory of the stuff that has value is definitely true, um, like <laughs> you know that that uh, the that like your um, yeah, like your uh, you know the phone the phones on which we're all having this conversation definitely came into existence because they were manufactured, you know, by, by, by workers and, uh, and they, they could have done so in a, in a different social system, uh, in, you know, like w- without, you know, any of the, the sort of particular machinery of how finance works and how ownership works and stuff that happens in, in our society. And, and I think that, at least for most contexts, you know, that's, that's probably the part that's most, you know, that most, that's most important. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like what's the big picture is probably more important. And also just like the way that that debate, like I said, is often used to just undermine the claims of working people to say that like, mm-hmm. they are the ones building making reproducing and do otherwise doing useful things in the society like that is a big part of why you know these arguments against the labor theory of value were made and insofar as it's it's made to say aha it's just not true that most value comes from labor because you know all these other little things you know you can't explain innovation that way like there's this way in which i just I'm like, you know, that there that has an ideological bent to it that I think everybody should, you know, take a deep breath about and not be so defensive. Like working people do mm-hmm. are the ones that keep this society running and nobody has a good theory of innovation as far as I'm aware, not even capitalist yeah. economists. So it the 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 point like if it's used to talk about who is literally in the most in in a in the sense of like who is doing valuable stuff in our society, if it's used to undermine the claims of working people to say that they are, in fact, doing valuable things, then I'm just like, fuck you. I think it's obviously true that they are doing valuable things and they're doing most of the valuable (laughs) things. Yeah, 
No, exactly. I I I think that's I I I think that's totally right. I, and I and I I think that um, that that's the sort of I think that's like the normative core of what most. I mean, whatever. I mean, I, I mean, it's a descriptive claim, you know. But I mean, like the the normatively important core of what most socialists mean when they when they talk about it. And I think that that's completely correct. Whatever is true about the the sort of um, you know related, more technical, you know, descriptive claim about um, about prices. I mean, I, I guess you know, I, I would just plug uh, a article that i did a few days ago for for jacobin called the uh the kind of equality socialists most care about is equality of power uh where you know the this is a point that sort of briefly made in that article that uh you know that when we're talking about exploitation then you know we could have a much more uh complicated discussion about theories of exploitation but uh just in like kind of a really immediate intuitive sense to me you know what, what we're really talking about is uh the part of you know because you think about you think about economic inequality which is what the article is really about overall right and there are you know i, I think a lot of people have this sort of caricature when they they hear about you know economic equality that's like oh everybody has like precisely as much of everything as, as as anybody else as everybody else which you know really would be silly because you know it's, it's probably at any given point in time that's not going to be true and also there might be really good reasons uh you know why like some people might you know it might be fine for some people to earn higher salaries than others for doing certain things that uh whether whether it's that they have like you know they're being asked to take on particular, you know, stress and responsibility, or they, they just fill in certain really important needs or conversely, right. Go back to the essential workers example. I think in a saner society, people would have had to pay, be compensated much more to be so-called essential workers than to have, uh, you know, middle-class jobs where you can just be sent home with an employer laptop, you know, to be safe with your family, you know, during the, <laughs> the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, totally. So they're all, yeah, right. You know, so there are all sorts of reasons why you know we we would want uh, people to um, have uh, you know why some people you know it might be legitimate you know for some people to earn a little bit more or a little bit less than others. But I, I think what we're really talking about with exploitation is the part of this collectively produced uh, revenue that is taken by capitalists not because they have some sort of compelling claim that you could actually convince people to go along with you know like oh you know go back to steve's example right like i can't work you know because i have this medical condition or you know i'm doing this particularly you know dangerous thing i deserve to be paid a little bit more for that or anything like that but that's just taken literally because people have the structural power to take it totally i think we were we were going to do talk about exploitation once, weren't we, Ben? Uh, yeah, um, we were. We, yeah, yeah. I would still like to do that. Let's do. I um. I actually just in the interim since we talked about it, I've bec- I've I've developed much. I think much a much more strong op- opinion about the exploitation debates. So, if you're ever into it, I would be into it. Nice. 
yeah, I would be very into that. And that's uh, let's let's end on that cliffhanger to uh, <laughs> okay. uh, find out the next time we talk what your uh, what your new strong opinion is about how to theorize exploitation. Uh, no, that sounds really fun. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much for doing this, Lillian. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben, and thanks for the good questions. Um, it was nice talking to you. All right, nice talking to you too. All right. Bye. All right. Uh, so uh, that was uh, Lillian Sekirchia, uh, the Free University of Berlin. You should check out her stuff in Jacobin and other places. Uh, and, you know, watch her on GTA and uh, uh, our, uh, like those uh, socialist brother countries that you, could, uh, that you could go to with those East German trade union competitions, our socialist brother podcasts, uh, Left Reckoned and This is Revolution. Uh, and um, this is probably it uh, for today. I should say there's no GTA episode uh, tomorrow. We are taking a week off between uh, Christmas and, uh, and New Year, but uh, we are going to be back on January 3rd, uh, a mandatory plug, uh, my uh, my new book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters is going to be out by then. It is officially out on January 1st, although if you pre-order from worker-owned Red Emma's, redemmas.com, they have already started shipping out pre-orders. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Going to end, uh, end there for today. Left is best. <laughs>